What's happening, everybody? And welcome to another fun-filled, mind-expanding episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, and today is March 17th, 2021. That makes it St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Uh, Being an Irish guy from Boston, St. Patrick's Day for me is a lot like Easter, uh, but instead of looking for Easter eggs... You got to go look for your friend, Sean, who you lost on that one bar on Calm Ave uh, about 14 beers ago. It's, uh, it's a big deal, and uh, I encourage you to go out and listen to your favorite, the Pogues album, and drink a pint of Guinness for your old friend, Bob. All right, we got a great show for you today. I am looking forward to introducing our guests, but beforehand, we've got a couple of announcements here. Uh, anybody interested in jazz composition, and I imagine many of you are, uh, there is a really interesting series of courses that are going on nowadays uh, via, uh, I think it's Zoom, but it's online. It's kind of a, it's an online master class with the composer and arranger and conductor David Berger uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time this Sunday, March 21st. 2021, you can see David Berger's workshop on Duke Ellington's 1940 smash hit composition, Coco. And uh, you can find that at courses.suchsweetthundermusic.com. Once again, that's courses.suchsweetthundermusic.com. I've heard great things about David Berger's uh, uh, workshop on another Duke Ellington composition. I think he did it last week, and they decided to make a whole series about it. So check out Such Sweet Thunder Music, and uh, you can subscribe to that and check out their various workshops on the music of Duke Ellington and maybe some other things. And uh, that's $10 a workshop. 3 p.m. on Sunday. Check that out. That's going to be really cool. Uh, In terms of records coming out these days, Michael Thomas's Natural Habitat is coming out next week. I think it was a couple days, from, uh, nine days from now on uh, March 26th on Sunnyside Records. I'm going to be talking to Michael next week about his album and his approach. Uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, the Queens Brewery, if you're in, if you're here in New York City, the Queens Brewery is back in action with the Stan Killian uh, jam session on Monday nights. So we're back at it. I'm optimistic. Here we've been. Uh, this is actually the one-year anniversary since New York City shut down uh, all of the musical endeavors and uh, just about everything else. So here we are, one year later, and we're getting back to it. I'm optimistic, gang. Slowly but surely, we're we're coming back stronger than ever. Am I right? So go if you're in uh, if you're in the Ridgewood Queens area, as I am, go check out Stan Killian's session on Monday nights. You can also check out. Uh, Soapbox Gallery and Smalls and all these other places doing live streams. Be sure to support the music. Uh, speaking of supporting the music, I wanted to uh, give you a little information. Uh, there is a GoFundMe happening for the uh, for Shapeshifter Lab. Now, Shapeshifter Lab is a Brooklyn institution for jazz, and it is uh, run by Matt Garrison, Jimmy Garrison's Son, as well as Fortuna Sung, and uh, a really amazing crew of people who, uh, you know, are able to put on these shows of various different organizations, as well as record and, you know, present live streams of the music. So, if you got a little extra money and you want to help them out, uh, it would really mean a lot. You can find that by going to the 
GoFundMe page, GoFundMe.com, and searching for uh, Shapeshifter Lab, and that'll bring you to the site. Uh, and whatever you can donate to the cause, I would love it if they could bounce back from this whole COVID mess because it's a really amazing spot. And uh, that was the last place that I did my uh, non-net uh, CD release live stream, and they've been good to the community, and uh, it's a really amazing space. So if you got a little extra money and you want to throw it their way, that would be amazing. All right, gang. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest this week, composer, band leader, and educator Ein Incerto. Ein is an associate professor in jazz composition at Berklee College of Music, and she is the leader of the Ein Incerto Jazz Orchestra, based in my old hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Ein and the Ein Incerto Jazz Orchestra have released four albums, uh, Clairvo Clairvoyance, featuring George Garzon and Bob Brookmeyer, Muse, featuring George Garzon, Home Away From Home, and Down a Rabbit Hole, her most recent release, featuring Sean Jones, George Garzon again, and trombonist John Fedchok. Ein also has a new animated remote video out featuring my old friends Mark Zaleski, Rick Stone, Dan Rosenthal, and many more. Be sure to check that out on YouTube. It's really cool. Uh, she's, you know, it's amazing to see the different ways that people have been able to be creative, even despite not being able to play music with one another. Uh, but be sure to check that out as well as her many albums. It, they are really beautiful records, and I've had a lot of fun diving deep into them. I was happy to get to talk to Ayn about her experience studying with Bob Brookmeyer, uh, various approaches to practicing composition, and her own views on her inspiration and the creation of new music. We had a lot of fun, and I know you will too. So without further ado, here she is, Ayn Incerto. Your show at the Gen Conference, I think, was the la one of the last performances that I saw before we got totally shut down. Yeah, it was my third to last performance. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just, it's really hard to believe the fact that, I mean, especially being in New Orleans where, you know, it's sort of like a little bit like Party City, if you will. and Sure. That many people in the same area and, you know, all the hugging going on and <laughs> oh yeah the buying of the drinks and all of this kind of stuff is just like it's crazy to think like that because nowadays i look at somebody's like there's no way that if i'm with someone not of my household that i will take a sip of your whatever you sure know? yeah right so, seems like a different world looking back to it totally and and just a year ago basically yeah yeah so that's quite a feat getting the whole big band down from Boston to New Orleans, huh? Yeah, well, it's, we were lucky. That was the second time we did it. And, um, you know, it, it had been three years, I think, since Jen was in New Orleans. And, um, and I'm like, let's do it again. It was just so much fun. And I applied and they accepted. And it was so funny because I always put it out to the band like, hey, you know, we're going down there. I can give you a little bit of a stipend, but I, you know, I can't necessarily cover all the costs. And the way that um, that it works for a lot of people's bands is usually you find out who's going to the conference already anyways, and then you put that together where I have a shell of, of a band that I need, like, you know, obviously, like, um, with a rhythm section, like, definitely bass and drums, and then and a couple of other folk. But otherwise, it's like sometimes you just supplement people. Mm -hmm. Sure. But then they're all, like, a lot of them are educators already, mm -hmm. and... 
So they end up also, they're like, yeah, we'll go. And they also think of it in two ways. Some, for some of them, it's like mini vacation. So they, they would have spent that money that way. Sure. But a lot of them will get funding through the places they teach. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, you know, it's a work conference. So sure. Yeah, that's the, a big help. Yeah, the most fun work, of course, but... <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. That was a blast. That was my first time in New Orleans, and it was really... Uh, oh. I'd, I'd, have, I'd have so many people telling me that I needed to make a pilgrimage, because I'm a trumpet player, so yes. that's my roots, you know what I mean? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of understood it, but being there, it's really a very fascinating place. There's an energy to the to the very structure of the place or something like that. It's got a spirit to it that's really... It's hard to describe, but it's pretty amazing to see. Yeah, I mean, I I can't wait to be able to go down there to just enjoy it, um, you know, as the city it is. It's so unique, you know, not just in the musical sense. Uh, the food is insane. It's, it's insane. Yeah. But the architecture and just, um, you know, even the people, like, it's it's almost like visiting a, a small European country in some weird ways. And um, and it's just, it's so charming, it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not what I think about, like, particularly, like, when you have ideas of what the South is or that sort of a thing. Or, or, but um, I love it. I think it's such an amazing place. And obviously the music. But it's definitely, I think, <laughs> it's the favorite conference site. Like, for that one, you know, it's, I mean, it's always interesting to see how many people really want to go to Dallas. <laughs> sure, right. Year. Yeah, yeah. How much, sure. I'll, Although I think people are going to be itching to go to the conference now more than ever, um, if it can be even a small sense of normalcy, because sure. it doesn't really matter where it is. It's just all about what you can see and who you can see and stuff like that. Yeah, I hope that I, I hope that that will be a positive. At the end of this, we will sort of have a re, um, let's say a re- little reevaluation or a, a renewed appreciation for just being in a place with people. You know what I mean? And especially, you know, maybe, I want to say acoustic music, but maybe it doesn't really matter what it is, but but improvised music, like playing mm-hmm. music with people in real time. I, oh, I yeah. I think that we're going to have a new appreciation for all of that at the end of this. Well, the thing that we talked about, like we tell our students, because the poor, you know, those poor cats are just, especially the, the ones who are just like in their second semester or something, and this is not a college experience they right. thought they, they were going to get. But, you know, you look historically, like, at the um, the 1918 flu um, pandemic there, and after that, we're the Roaring Twenties, you yeah. know? So there will be a renaissance, because human beings can't can't survive like this. There's just no way. We're, we're such social creatures that, you know... And it's been really interesting, because I see them doing things, like, very retro. Like, not just a vinyl thing, but now they're also using... Um, like film and cameras, like real mm-hmm. film is that's making a big comeback, you know? Yeah. And they want stuff that's more tangible, like real books. And, um, you know, so I, I'm encouraged by that because they really don't want this. Yeah. It's too much. It's, it, it, I, I agree. I, I'm encouraged by that kind of move, especially cause it seems like everybody's been like, you know, on their phones in here on the computer so much that this is almost like, uh, it's overwhelming. It's nice to get back to, you know, real life stuff. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, so with your big band, do you have, how, it's a pretty, cons- how consistent is the lineup? Um, well, <laughs> we're going to hit our 20 year mark in June. So that's wow, pretty, that's pretty good, huh? I know it's, 
scary and good at the same time. Like, wow, I can't believe it was that long. Or it has been that long. Mm-hmm. Um, the it it varies obviously if someone's moving away or or stuff like that. I think in the first ten years, um, there was a lot more of that going on because a lot of it was a lot of us um, being of the same like after grad school type of age and. Um, and still people kind of in Boston, not in Boston, and then moving away, going to New York and that sort of a thing. And then I would probably say in the last, like, you know, at least like seven years or so, and I hate to say it, but (laughs) maybe because of age (laughs) and just people settling, like they've been more settled, like in the areas, like, and so that lineup has been pretty consistent, I would say, um, over the last like seven or eight years, um, more so than ever. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a couple of um, maybe just some of the people who play the band. I don't know if you want to do everybody. That's, <laughs> that might be a lot, but maybe so, or maybe some of the um, the longest standing members of the group. Well, the original members: um, Jeff Clausen, who plays um, trumpet, um, lead trumpet. Uh, he is one of the original band members. Um, Garo Saradarian plays trombone, um, and Garo is funny because he'll play whatever chair I ask him to play. Uh, but he also has been one of the original mem- members of the band, and another member would be Matthew Small, and so he is um, he's somebody who's been in a band from the beginning as well. So they've been there the whole twenty year run. Wow! Uh, and it's yeah, it's it's really 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 fun. Um, the fact that they're in there, I've actually Chris Gagney, who's a trombone player in the band. It was funny because he was in the band. He left to go to Miami to get his doctorate. Ended up coming back. I'm like, wait, Chris is back? All right. <laughs> so he's he's one of those actually very, very different ones. that I, I don't think I've ever had someone leave and come back. So hmm. he's, he's the first one that did that. Um, but yeah, some of the newer additions, B. John Watson um, on trumpet and... Uh, basically he's i think he's been playing it now for maybe about like four years or so jason yeager on piano would be one of the newer members as well um austin mcmahon my drummer has been since the my second album so that was around 2009 or eight something like that when we came out with it so mm-hmm. um alan chase um is kind of a newcomer-ish probably last like eight nine years or something like that um he likes to call himself a senior member of the band uh, <laughs> and a lot of us have studied with him or or that sort of a thing but mm-hmm. it's, it's been really really great um mm. yeah i actually had a band re- I, my birthday was a few weeks ago and i was like let's do a reunion and i emailed about you know, 50 people and not, and that's not just all of them. And, you know, probably about 30 people showed up. It was amazing. I was like, sure. I can't believe all of you people have been through the band, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's it was really amazing. Like, and I was like, and it was so fun. Every time somebody came in, you're like, no way. <laughs> so. Oh man, I believe it. That's, I guess it's, it's a, the, the running a, a big band is sort of a double-edged sword in that regard. And that it's a big task to make sure everybody's, you know, calling all the people, making sure everybody's going to show up and blah, blah, blah. But then you get the, such a blending of personalities and such a mix. Yeah, I mean, one of my earlier rehearsals, I remember, it actually started out as the idea of being a rehearsal band for mm-hmm. composers in the area. 
I just graduated from NEC and it was the summer and I'm like, we should play once a month. We should, you know, get together and get the opportunity for it. And so actually Darcy came in and would bring a chart. Um, Darcy was still around in the area at the time. I, I graduated a year be, uh, during his, um, you know, I was a year ahead of him in the school, although I think he's, he is older than me. I will say that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and so he was around and then like um, Jeff Clawson was also in school at the time. So we were all just like kind of playing, you know, each other's music. And then it started to morph into my band. Mm. You know, it really, Brookmeyer was the one who said, like, you need to start a band. And so my idea initially, though, because I liked the idea of community. Um, and so that was what it was. And it stemmed from, you know, the workshop band that was exist that existed at NEC. Mm. Um, and then it morphed into my band. And then we just played my music. <laughs> and then that was... And that was it. So yeah, and so about one one day during that summer, I called. It was Tuesday in June, and I called like twenty drummers, and no one could make it. What what are drummers doing on a Tuesday <laughs> in June? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was like 20, 25 drummers. I'm like, you got you got to be kidding me! I couldn't get anybody for this rehearsal. It was really funny. That's fine. Uh, um, so, that was the first one. Uh. The first the, rehearsal? Yeah. Oh no! I mean, it was just it was just one of those rehearsals. Sure, right. Um, and it was just so funny to me. And so yeah. Um, so then after that, when I started to rehearse, when it was my band, the first person I will always check with when they're available is the drummer. You know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. everyone else is like, whatever. Yeah. As long as you got that, as long as the backbone is there, the rest of it makes sense. Yeah. For totally. Sure. Yeah. So let's go back in time a little bit. Um, what was your, uh, let's say, how did you start off in music? What are your musical origins, and how did you end up getting into jazz composition in the first place? Um, so I am originally from Singapore, and, you know, very typical sort of like learning to play piano, classical piano, and Singapore is, um, and in Asia you have like, like Suzuki methods, or you have like I was a part of the Yamaha School of Music, and so that's that's where I started in terms of um, learning music and stuff that sort of a thing, and then um, and then it was actually interesting because <laughs> I had this book, Disney book, right? All these Disney tunes in it. It was probably like you know, it's like seven or eight or whatever it was, and I already knew how to read music, but. I, but it was all written music that I knew about. I didn't know how to do like improvise or chords. And I didn't want to, I mean, I want to play pop music. I want to play Disney songs. Uh -huh. On the back of this was this chart, a chord chart of all of the chords that are in, in the book, like, cause it's all lead sheet stuff mm -hmm. and it just outlined the chords. And so that's how I learned how to do lead sheet stuff is because I memorized those chords and then like, cause I wanted to play my favorite songs. Sure. So that's, and then I started like, okay, well, this sounds boring if I just went like chunk and I start like, you know, creating accompaniment and, and then that's where I sort of got into learning how to play that way. But then I joined a church choir when I was like 10 or 11 and there was this group of, um, you know, instrumentalists and they were into, I, I say jazz in quotations because um, back at that time in Singapore, there wasn't really like that wasn't anything that people really knew about in terms of style of music. <clears throat> but so it was very mainstream. 
they introduced me to Manhattan Transfer. Okay. And, <laughs> and so that was my sort of introduction to sort of like learning about jazz. Mm-hmm. Moved to the U.S. Um, when I was about 14 and then, you know, discovered like the jazz band like in eighth grade. They, I could play piano and I could hear really well. I just, I didn't know anything about language or anything like that, but I could read really well compared to some of the others. So they put me in a piano seat. And then finally, like my sophomore year in high school, my band director was like, here's a list of um, jazz pianists you should check out. And, um, and so I went out and bought all these CDs. I fell in love with Bill Evans, um, you know. And before that was probably just like a lot of folk coming from the classical world was very much like Chick Corea because of all the chops stuff and whatnot. That was attractive. So then, so then that's what happened then. And then, but I'd always been composing and that sort of thing. I was actually in um, drum and bugle corps. Okay. And I would. What did I you play? A, you didn't play piano and drum and bugle corps. No, <laughs> I was a mallet percussionist. I was in the okay. pit in the front and and so and also in my high school we had one, but there were not a lot of really interesting things going on there. So I actually started to write for that. Um, oh wow! For the drum and bugle corps. Yeah, just for the front ensemble type stuff. Huh. And um, so so I started to do that, like arranging for whatever shows we had. And I also did it with, um, a, you know, concurrently with the high school. And so that's where that composition aspect. And then I started writing tunes, you know, just um, I went to a Berkeley in L.A. thing. They did. And back then it was. Um, you know, there was a lot of jazz back then. Um, it was different. It became something different now, but, and that's when the Berkeley, that program you mean, or yeah, it was a Berkeley in LA. It's a one week program and it was, um, like during the summer Mm -hmm. and it's similar to what they had with the five week program, but just crammed into one week. Sure. And since I was in California, that made more sense for me to be able to just go down there versus coming out to Boston. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, and so but I it was that. mostly jazz back then, as opposed to now. It's kind of a combination of various things. Yeah, I mean, back then it was yeah mostly jazz. Now it actually got turned into a songwriting workshop more so. Um, hmm. But that's where I learned my two five ones, voicings. But I was even still writing like tunes, and then I started to write tunes and learn repertoire. Like obviously, just you know, learning stuff out of the real book, getting like little gigs, cocktail gigs, and then I just started writing tunes. I had a trio with some friends. Uh, called Nocturne Trio, and then, <laughs> but we would do some original stuff, and then I attempted to try to write some stuff for Big Band High School, but it didn't quite work out as well. So it wasn't really until like I got to college, um, when I really started to write for um, larger ensembles and stuff. I always did the combo stuff, but when I finally did my, um, yeah, I was at Cal State Hayward. Um, which is now Cal State East Bay. Um, Dave Eshelman's the name, the director there, was mm-hmm. the director there. And so under his tutelage, and I played his stuff for years, um, and then he encouraged us to write for Big Band. He had an arranging class that he he led, but and we had the resource of the band to play. And then so, but he encouraged a bunch of us to, to write for it, and that's where that happened. And then well- finally... What were you doing in in school then? Were you doing piano or um, yeah. jazz or? So at at Hayward, 
they had, um, it was just a Bachelor of Arts in Music. There was no okay. said like jazz studies degree, but there was a huge, like Dave is, is such an amazing writer and director. And so there's a huge jazz presence there. Um, so, but my, my senior recital was in performance piano classical <laughs> I laugh now because like what it was classical piano although the first half of my recital was the classical repertoire and then the second half we had the big band play my pieces but I was always the piano pianist in the band as well mm-hmm. uh, which changed when I came out to Boston and went to NEC um, and really just went into the composer aspect of it um, with studying with Brookmeyer sure uh, what brought you to NEC Bruckmeyer. I mean, that's, you know, it's funny. There was a conference in Anaheim. Back then it was called the IAJE. Um, they went bankrupt uh, later on, and then the gem thing started to happen. Mm-hmm. But Alan Chase approached a band, and he approached me. He's like, hey, you know, you should consider applying to NEC. Um, you know, Bob Bruckmeyer teaches there. And I looked at him like, yeah, I know. My application should be on your desk. So <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's what brought me out out here, um, you know, is, is I really wanted to study with him. Um, and actually, it was the only grad school I applied to, because I'm like, if I don't get in there, I'll wait another year or something like that and figure it sure. out. Sure. That's funny, actually. I, I went, to, I graduated from NEC as well. I did my master's at NEC, and it was the only place that I applied to as well. And to me, it was, it's such a unique place, mm-hmm. and it... It, it, it's a very um, open-minded atmosphere. I feel like it's very much uh, their whole vibe, which has gone back forever. I mean, with Rand Blake and George Russell and all these people who, you know, or Gunther Schuller starting, you know, there's all this this kind of spirit of like, all right, we're going to pull your personality out of you in a certain way, which I, yeah. I don't know if that's, cons- I, I haven't, I mean, that's the only music school I've been to. So I don't know if it's, yeah, the same thing everywhere, but it seems to be very um, open-minded, kind of flexible and creative. Yeah, I think, you know, and it's, it is unique in some way, because I know that some other programs are maybe slightly more rigid, um, but, you know, and this may not suit a lot of people. Some people would prefer something that is um, has a little bit more regiment to it or more business aspects built into it. But coming from, like, a Cal State University system where, you know, every syllabus is followed to, every syllabi is like followed to a T. Um, you know, to go to NEC was like, what? <laughs> so it's yeah, a little right. bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> sure, yeah. But I, I loved it. It was, and I think it is, you know, for me, I definitely am, am glad that I went there for grad school for me. Like that makes the most sense because it really just kind of gets you out of your shell if you will and and uh and i love the flexibility of the program too so mm-hmm. um yeah so were you writing a lot you must have you went in as a as a composition major you must have been writing a lot in advance or at yeah. least to some degree to some degree i mean you had to in the application process obviously you had to submit some recordings and writing samples and that sort of a thing and as far as jazz composition goes I wasn't writing as much in that before NEC I had my hands in all sorts of different things because I was writing for like I I told you about being a percussionist so I I was writing for like pit ensembles and like marching bands or or that sort of a thing or drum and bugle corps and that was a way to have like work um 
and and actually I dabbled in writing some classical music and stuff like that as well. Um, it wasn't, but the on the other hand too, in my undergrad, I was also like my I was gigging as a pianist, so much so. So to go to NEC, I had to really to focus into the writing. Um, that was when I you know really really started to get really deep into it, and um, I ended up writing a lot when I was there for sure. Mm-hmm. Like really. I, I tell my students this all the time. They don't they don't regard writing or composing the way that they do practicing their instrument. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's the same concept. You can practice your instrument eight hours a day or whatever it is to, to try to be a master at it. You've got to write the same amount, you know? And sure. that's where I started to get into that sort of regimen of understanding that to become proficient at this, I need to invest time into it. Sure. So what were your first couple of lessons with Brookmeyer like? How did, what, what, what was the trajectory that he set you on? So it's all very scary. All of us have this first scary experience with Bob. Um, Bob loved to, he would only be there um, six times a semester. But you met with him, I believe, two hours um, each time he was there. So you meet with him like twice, not a two hour stretch, but like maybe twice in that week or something like that. And for, for Bob, like, Oh, and of course, you know how any, so you can split your lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did full Bob like the whole time I was there. So some people just got half Bob and, and then half someone else. Mm-hmm. So what he liked to do with the entering class and initially um, he didn't really take undergraduates at the time when I was there. Um, he did later on. He, he would have us meet in a group lesson the first week, and it was scary. Because uh, here you are with people that you just met. And at the time, you know, uh, they, they would take in, like, let's say it was like three, three new grad students. So there are three of us. We meet on a Tuesday, and he's like, playing your music and critiquing it in front of your colleagues that you just sure. met. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you're sitting there for two hours listening to all of this. And then he gives you these exercises. Um, and I'm just saying this, I know everybody had the same experience. We gave us this exercise to complete by the next day. And it was really funny because it's called a white note exercise. And he gave us the white note exercise, and he's asking us to write two or three of these by the next day. So the next day we go back, he plays through them, and he's critiquing them in front of, of again, of your colleagues. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, this doesn't work. Why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. And I remember him saying that about mine. And then he starts to play another colleague of mine, Gabe's. Gabe's, he puts Gabe's up, and he's like playing it. He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, this is not bad, not bad. And he turns to me, he's like, Ayn, this is what I was expecting from you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, and then the last day we all, uh, we had our first one-on-one for an hour. But, you know, he, he is, he was such a, he could be really intimidating, but if, he, but he is, was such a generous soul. And he really loved music. He had a great sense of humor uh, but he was very firm and he really made you think about what you were doing. And when he said something like that, you have to really be like, okay, he's being very matter of fact. You got to make sure that that's in your head. 
he also wouldn't say that to you if he didn't believe um, that you had the possibility of moving past that, mm-hmm. that you had more to give, you know? So he wouldn't like, I mean, and when he gave you, you know, when he gave you props, it was like amazing. Sure. Because you're like, holy, you know, like, wow, I actually, you know, I, I made Bob Brookmeyer happy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but he was a very, he was a very loving person as well, too. Um, although I think sometimes there's a little bit like, if he loved you, he loved you. <laughs> if he didn't care for you, you knew that too. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, yeah. So it's, but he was so generous with his time and, um, and so generous with, uh, you know, himself. He was, he made himself very available. Hmm. You know, even past the time I was at NEC. Uh, and that was, that was just like, that's just amazing. You know, what a gift. Sure. He may have also come from a, gener- a certain generation of people that were really no nonsense, but it, it is, it means something when, you know, okay, we got it right this time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so, you know, and, and just also the fact that he, um, you know, he, he had played in so many different types of situations, lived in different places around the world. And, you know, he had like a lot of life experience, if you will. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so for those listening, the white note exercise is you get, correct me if I, when I go off the rails here, but you get an, is it an octave? Yes. And you get, you have to stick to C major. Yes. White notes. And in the bass is a pedal C. Yes. So here's the funny thing though, because I was talking to somebody else and someone said, Oh, when he did it with me, he did like a pedal A. I'm like, that's weird. But okay. Uh, but yeah, in general, it's a pedal C. It's within an octave. Um, white, white notes only, as we call it, just C major. 4-4 uh, four, four time was the way that I was taught. Again, if you're different, people have different tweaks on this. Okay. So 4-4 four, four time away from the instrument, right? Oh, and, really? So yeah. you had to write it? Okay. Um, and it's like a page, like a page of manuscript paper. Um, and... And part of it being away from the instrument so that you're not on autopilot, like, you know, if you're writing something and then like you're just automatically playing something and you like write it down. Sure. It's more about what's up here if it translates directly to your pencil. Because I know for a fact that when I first started doing it, I was writing it out. I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and then go play it. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, and so it's the discipline uh, is what I tell my students is the discipline of really understanding uh, the sort of music that goes on in your head that sounds so perfect and whether or not you are able to really cap, you know, capture that. Um, mm. And the, the, the instrument gets in the way of that because you're hearing something that's produced sometimes by automatic pilot and also sometimes something that's not internal necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, for different, he, does, he did use it also as a tool for improv. For improvising. Okay. So obviously when you're doing it with improvising, you're not writing it out. Um, and it's a different, but he wants you to focus, you know, there's a little bit more focus. Um, I think particularly in, in time intention, resolution, um, in making sure, um, every note is weighted, um, equally, uh, the direction of motivic development that's happening. Are you conscious of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. As I think of it, I think of it as being, um, as I understand it, he was big on fill the page. You want to just create music, and 
uh, it seems to me one of these things that'll get you outside of your comfort zone to do something like that. Say, all right, here are the limitations. I have to. These are the limitations in within which I have to work. Um, but it's interesting. I, I was a little surprised to hear that he was so critical of it because it seems like sort of a way of generating ideas. But I wonder if you. Can, it may not be easy to do, but I wonder if you could describe. And I don't want to make you relive your, your, <laughs> you know, uh, terrifying beginnings of this, but. What might be something where you'd say, okay, this could have been done better within the confines of this exercise? Or like, how, how might it go, I don't know, how might you construct a melody within that um, context that really works as opposed to doesn't work? Um, I mean, it is, the, the biggest thing that happens with the white note exercise the first time people do it is it tends to have, people tend to have too many ideas. They have no direction. Um, and Because okay. I give this to my students and this is how I can examine them. And, and so the idea of primarily behind it is motivic development and telling the story of that. You're not talking about any kind of song form. You're basically just seeing what your musical idea is and how you can lead that throughout the whole thing. Another problem that happens is people don't think about... You're, oh, by the way, you're also away from harmony, right? You're mm -hmm. not using any chords or anything like that. So it's purely about the line. And examining the line about um, where the cadence is. A lot of people don't cadence melodically. They don't think of cadencing melodically. Um, and so that, that's another aspect that becomes a problem. And then the other aspect, too, is not having tension resolution, which I guess applies towards cadencing. But if you're hanging out too much on the, on the weak tones, as we think of within C major, so 2, 4, 6, and 7... And it starts to have the sense of like being ambiguous and not having any direction or just wandering is what I call it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think uh, when I, when I, I, I do kind of do it like Brookmeyer and like, I kind of throw it at my students and see what happens. I do mention the fact that I'm looking for motivic development, that this isn't like an AABA form and not to think about harmony, although harmony may be implied. Mm -hmm. but but I feel like sometimes if I give them a slight nudge also in, in talking about having cadences, that's important. Um, but I see the results still being the same most of the time. <laughs> sure. So you, you still teach this to your composition students in, in yeah. the beginning? I have a class um, called the Compositional Techniques of Bob Brookmeyer. And so oh, okay. I, I introduce all these exercises that I went through um, with them, you know, and so, yeah, in the hopes of having them generate, my thinking behind it is to generate organic material that's theirs. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so that's part of it. What are some of the other exercises that you did with him? So there's another one called the major seventh exercise in the left hand. Like if you're looking at a grand staff of a piano, the left hand is going down by um, half notes and going down chromatically um, as major sevens. Um, and then in the right hand, you create lines and it goes down and it goes up, the left hand does. So you're gonna create um, just continuous eighth notes. So there's no rhythmic aspect to this. This is more of a pitch exercise. Mm -hmm. And you can't use at the time whatever is in the left hand. So the first, the first two beats is gonna be C and B so you, you have the possibility of using 10 notes against that. And, um, and you can't repeat a note. You also want to avoid using like 
um, melodic intervals of perfect fourths and fifths because the idea behind this it is um, an atonal exercise. And so melodic fourths and fifths will actually suggest um, cadencing. Mm-hmm. And um, and also want to try to avoid patterns. You want to you want to try to go and have like uh, non symmetrical type of shapes. Maybe almost like going over the bar line type of a um, situation. And also, you don't want to imply any sort of harmony with what's going on in the left hand. But it's a kind of opposite of the white note because this is meant to be like totally atonal, where we can have try try to have equal value of each pitch. Um, and, but also not to try to have it sound like a chromatic scale kind of a vibe. Sure. Um, a voice leading exercise he does is called, um, you know, diff- different people have different titles for it. For me, it was called a three note collection where he gives you a starting point. These are moving by half notes. He gives you a starting point of a three note collection. So like, for example, it could be like C, D and G, right? And then measure seven, he'll give you another three notes. Um, and so you had to figure out how to get from one point to the next. Mm, okay. So it's like a voice leading exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, were there harmonies built into that or is it just, no, um, these are going to be non like non-traditional, um, triads or trichords, I guess is a better word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's again, trying to think out of the box. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you might have like configurations that are like, um, fourths or fifths harmonies, um, you know, you try to avoid reposition triads if you can, um, although like diminish and augmented are okay. Um, yeah, so, but it's a voice leading type of exercise and it's fun because it, it actually creates, helps you to create some non-conventional sounds, which you can't insert in a conventional type of a progression. Mm-hmm. There was, a, I was, um, recently rereading, uh, Dave Ravello's book mm-hmm. in conversation and uh, there's a quote in there where um, Bob Brookmeyer says, the p- purpose of the exercise is to bring you to a, a place that is cold and unforgiving. <laughs> Something like that. It was like, it, the idea was just to take you out of your comfort zone and, and sort of force you into a new way of thinking. Oh, yeah. I mean, def- definitely. <laughs> he was very good at that, for sure. <laughs> what did you get out of, the, for example, I, I don't want to say it like that, but what, what was the value to you in the, um, in the, the the major seventh exercise the chromatic thing is that is that more a, a, to open your ears up to that or is it to find new ways of getting around uh let's say the music in a atonal setting yeah i mean it i think like you said opening your ears um you know is is a good way of thinking of that but for me it just it made me pay attention a little bit more to like shapes and direction um you know and mm. One of the things that I always tell my students is even if you don't do the exercise in a successful way, you've succeeded in creating material. Mm-hmm. So you can always take that material and, and compose whatever you want with it. And so with the major seventh, it just really opened up my ears a little bit more to having um, to figure out how I can can be in this sort of like non-tonal setting. And I like to put it against a tonal setting. So you have sort of like sometimes it's a dual tonality or more intervallic relationship type of situation. I th- I think that's that's what the major seventh exercise does for me. It also allows like if I am writing something that sounds a little bit more conventional or traditional, um, a way to to be out of, out of that 
particular, um, you know, that kind of a writing style um, in a piece where I can have some tension in there. And that's what the major seven did for me. Hmm. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the sort of, um, let's say, that the white note exercise and the chromatic exercise are in many ways sort of opposites of one another. But both of them are going to make you think about, you know, one side of that and maybe bring it together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite things to do is I will make my students write, like, a white note. And then I'd be like, all right, now take, like, the phrase or whatever if it works and now just go ahead and like, don't even think about it. This is where it's fun. Don't even think about it. Literally like put something up a half step or put something down a half step. Like just mess with it a little bit. Because if the shape is intact, right, in a conventional way, then it should be pretty good if you also alter it chromatically. And they're surprised by that result. Mm. And I always say like, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of like a Miles thing. It's just, but you know, you're a half step away from something you like. You know, so sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I there's this uh, applicable tools. The white note for me, the biggest thing with that is even on a macro level, because it also teaches you about development. Um, and so I find that, that those are the lessons that I learned from that. Uh, one other exercise that I do use a lot and I think is very useful is called the uh, pitch module. And so you could have a, a motif and just take the pitches out of that whatever those pitches are. And then you're going to figure out all the different permutations that you can have with it. Um, and not only that, so just obviously rearranging the transposition, but then the last thing you can do with it is you look at the intervallic relationships and just sort of go free with those same type of intervals. And the fun part about that is that it really gives you all of this pitch material um, that relates back to whatever it is you're starting. Then to go hand in hand with that, there's the rhythmic module exercise where you're taking the rhythms and you're doing the same thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, so I find those are those two exercises to be a very good problem-solving exercises. Okay. Because when you're stuck, you're like, what am I doing here? Um, you know, I don't know where to go next. It's like, well, what material do you, do you have have you taken that material and have you broken it down to generate more material? Mm -hmm. And, and so, and so then that will give you the next place that you need to go to. Sure. I was going to ask if you continue, if you still will practice writing with these exercises, but it sounds like it may be a tool just in the midst of writing a piece. You can then use this as a jumping off point to try to create something new if you get stuck. Yeah. I mean, I have, the cool thing is because you know, in the initial stages, I guess you can call it, you know, like in the initial stages when you're learning an instrument or you're starting to master it, you know, um, playing etudes and all of that kind of stuff um, is, is what really helps you. And now as you get into a regular um, routine or a regiment um, in sort of practicing, you're not going through like the whole Arben's book you know, to warm sure. up, you're, right. you, you, but you, you have like, okay, I got to do my scales. I got to do my long tones and et cetera, arpeggios. And so the thing is, um, in, in the beginning, uh, when I started writing is that I did a ton of these exercises and so I can pull material from that, but I will, um, you know, as, as part of maintenance, I guess you could say, it's just write a white note, you know, just to get the juices flowed before I even write something. Mm -hmm. It's literally a warm up. It's a great warm up. 
And, um, but I will use these tools and exercises to generate material mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and also sometimes I even do it on purpose because I'm like, all right, the last piece I wrote sounded like Frankenstein. I'm going to write something pretty. <laughs> and so what's the best exercise? What are the best exercises for that? My well, three note collection and um, white note works really well in that direction. Mm -hmm. So then I might try to find things that work with that. So sure. I am consistently fascinated by the creative process. And one thing that I want the average person to understand is that uh, very often composition isn't just, you know, oh, I had a dream of this. This thing was like dry, this the whole piece was <laughs> dropped into my mind in the middle of the night or something like that. And I jumped up and wrote it all down. There's such a, a technical process to creating a piece of music. Yeah. Um, and it's it's fascinating the different ways that people will approach that process. How do you begin a piece of music? Um, and what's your what's your process in starting a new piece or in developing a piece that you've started? Um, Bob was really into and I, I try to encourage my students as well, but the idea of pre-compositional work. So, um, you know. I've been lucky enough lately that, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is writing for other people, whether it's commissions or that sort of a thing. So in some ways I have like, okay, I want you to write seven minute tune. You know, I want you to write in this style. So in some ways I've already been given some parameters, but if I'm given the freedom, actually, I just, I just got another commission. It's like, do what you want. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and oh, so I have to, the, the, my first process is the macro level. It's like, um, like, is this going to, like, what kind of style am I getting into? Like, um, you know, and the length of it, perhaps. Um, and then where am I featuring a certain person? So I am thinking about those practical sort of things, um, you know. And then so if, like, if I decide, for example, if it's a length of 10 minutes, per, let's say, you know, and I'm like, okay, for me, a successful piece for me and specifically for me is like, I need to make sure I have about 33% upfront of writing of exposition, if you will. And then probably a solo section that's very traditional, maybe something featuring the band and then, and then out after that. So just, a, and I'm not necessarily, I, you don't have to stick to that plan, but the idea is that if you have something in front of you, then you have something that's tangible. You know, it's not like sitting around at the piano and tinkering away. You've actually made a plan for that. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I think about is like, I like to, I like to try to write contrasting pieces. Mm -hmm. So I think about what did I just do last? And then, so I'm going to contrast to that. And then, so I'm thinking even about tonal center sometimes, um, that contrast to that or like, um, like realms of, you know, what modality, if you will. Um, and then, so I'm like, okay, so then I'll plan it to be that. Then I will probably take, um, I'll take an exercise that I know can generate the material in the direction that I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And then, but there is still also like, sometimes there is still like tinkering at the piano and there's still like the aspects of Oh, I heard this idea. I had this idea and write it down. And then I'll take that though, that whatever that musical idea, and then I'll apply it with the exercises to try to manipulate or develop that. 
Mm. Um, and the funny thing, you talk about that, like, yeah. <laughs> and and when you first start writing, it is definitely that, oh, it came in a dream, or, you know, I, I started playing the piano, it just came to me. Like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, right, okay, that's great. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, well, it's true, and it does happen that way, and most of us start writing and composing that way. Um, but the other problem that we get is it's so personal, you know, like if you were practice, if you were in a lesson and your teacher said to you, no, you're playing that, that scale wrong or you're, you can't use those notes over this chord or you're out of the style. You wouldn't think twice about it. It's not a personal attack. But if I say to you, like, you know, you're not really developing your theme here, but you're like, I love that so much. And so that's the problem with composition. And something else that Brookmeyer taught is that you got to take your ear, remove your ear from yourself and put it on the piano is how he would say it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and like, and that gave you that visual of like, you got to detach yourself because you have is, to. Is that, is that an ego thing you're talking about? Or is no. that like a, what do you mean by that? It's like a personal, because, you know, when you write a, when a composition is just so personal as opposed to like, I think when we play our, our instruments and we're, you know, we're, we're playing through repertoire. It is personal, obviously, like in terms of like, we're, we're happy that we're able to replicate, you know, like to, to perform. That's a very personal feeling, but it's harder to take um, criticism on something that you've created, like mm-hmm. from scratch and, and hard to see past like what you're in love with it. Sure. You know? And that's mm-hmm. what it is. It's because, we have to detach ourselves from like um, what we think is a really good, solid idea. We have to make sure that it works. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is. It's not ego. It's just an emotional attachment mm-hmm. more so. And cause sure. with, with compositions, it is cause there's the whole con like some, for some people it's like a concept, you know, like, Oh, I was watching these birds and they look so lovely and it's spring out. And I just felt this song coming I'm like, okay, that's, but it's not, what are you doing with it? <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. So that's all it is. It's, and the ability to edit, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, and that's what it is. So, um, so that's part of the process is trying to be, uh, like having like discretion and, and really paying attention to like, is this really working here? Is this not working here? Am I developing this? Have I strayed away from the idea too much? Is it time to move on? Um, so yeah, so that's that's part of the process of it. Um, it's it's funny because there's a fine line between the idea of being create creative and being like very um, you know like a mathematician in some weird ways. Mm-hmm. But but music is that way, and so is art. If you look at art, um, you know a piece of art is like is it centered? Is it off centered? What's the ratio? You know. Sure. There's a math element to it. Yeah yeah yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it sounds like there's that little spark in, in all of these instances. There's a little spark of inspiration, and then a lot of it is just what you do with it, or how you develop it, or how you build on it, or play with it, or yeah. And it's different for different people, you know. I mean, this is just from from the way that I was. I guess I guess you could say that I was taught, or the you know the methodical way that um, I approach things. Mm-hmm. But the way that you're describing it, I mean, this is what's fascinating to me about doing these kinds of things is that. You can hear in your music the way that you're 
developing that. Like you, you'll take an idea and push it as far as you can. It seems, or you'll you'll like really use one idea to its maximum potential rather than just like oh let me string a bunch of stuff together or whatever. Yeah, and I mean I blame Bob for that. So sure, he turned <laughs> it literally like I have. I mean, he changed the way that I wrote or write. I continue to write. It comes from being a pianist where, you know, for me, like harmony and melody and everything has to occur um, at the same time to to becoming more of a linear writer and breaking it down that way. Um, it came it, directly from him is how I went about with that change. I'd say now, though, that I trust myself a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um and the pieces that I've been composing um, as of late um, tend to be like where I can allude, you know, allude to like my past of when I was a kid where I was listening to pop music or something like that more so, Tart 40, and allowed those things to creep into there. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I mean, I wrote a piece <laughs> that is like, like bebop lines. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, which was not anything that a lot of people are doing and in sort of my style of music and um and it's really really funny and uh, sometimes in some ways i'm like i just wanted to prove that i can write bebop lines um sure and, and then also like like sometimes i had written like eight measure phrases you know <laughs> but yeah right. so i allow myself a little bit i trust myself a little bit more to to gravitate to certain things that are more traditional or where some things can change that are not where i'm pushing the motif to the fullest because i i just have and personally, I have a better sense of the continuity the on, on how that can exist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Brookmeyer thing was really about pushing that musical idea to like to the you know the top of his existence and um, you know and trying to push that. And you can hear that in his music and his playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the school that I come from. Yeah. Um, I also appreciate, I, I really like, uh, down a rabbit hole, your most recent album. I've listened to that. Uh, it's a beautiful record and it's interesting. You're talking about the contrast between the pieces. Cause I can hear, like, I was going to ask you about that, that like the, the discrepancy between down a rabbit hole and, uh, the preceding tune. I'm trying to remember what the, the song right before it is. Um, I think it's Mr. It. And Dudley maybe, or. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, and they have a. It's a very. Uh, I really love that you can just. They're connected, and it's clear. Like it doesn't feel like it's a disjunct thing. I'm not listening to the record and being like, "Wait, is this a different album or something?" Like it's all part of the same thing, but it's uh, such a contrast between the dissonant and the consonants and all this other stuff. It seems like that's your objective. Is as you go through it, you say, "All right, I've already got. I've got a piece that kind of works within this normal harmonic framework." So. We're going to take the next one out. Yeah, I mean, I always had, my approach is, I, I think it's interesting because, you know, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I can't believe I've been doing this a long time. Um, but I, I, my initial idea was the fact that I want it to be as flexible and diverse as possible, musically diverse as possible. Mm-hmm. I love taking on projects where I'm out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I personally... And this is for me, like I personally like to see what I can do in different ways um, of presenting myself. So the the connection between the two is that, um, you know, my melodic development or, or however it is that I develop certain things. And you can hear that, whether it's in contrasting tunes, 
Um, and, and, and so it's so funny because nowadays I have to think like, I've written a lot of music and I'm like, am I copying myself? Have I done that already? But then I thought, sure. like, wait a second, I have a style now, so it's okay. I can be right. me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I think that's, I think that, and I thank you for that, for that comment. I really appreciate that you were able to hear that. Um, yeah, but that's definitely my approach is I really like to try to give the listener different perspectives, if you will. Um, I also like to try to make it accessible. It's not entirely a hundred percent accessible, obviously, to like the general public. I guess it all you depends, could say. you know. But I, I think that um, I've had some wonderful compliments from people who are non-musicians, who say that, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my favorites, honestly, the the comments from the people. Like, I want to know that people who are not studied musicians are also going to like what I do. And I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, some, for some people, they don't care about that. And for some people like certain, and this is, again, this is fine. It doesn't mean that they're less, you know, not successful or anything like that. But, um, I like the idea of being accessible. I like the idea of, you know, of somebody having fun and I like to make sure my band has fun as well mm-hmm. and enjoy playing it, you know, cause there is some music out there sometimes that is just really, um, there it's difficult and <laughs> sometimes there's no payoff as a yeah, player. Sure. Right. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of a, that may be a contemporary jazz thing to some degree. It's almost like, well, we've already done all this other stuff, so let's make this as hard as we possibly can. Yeah. And there are people who can write hard music. I, the first person that always comes to mind in this regard is Dave Holland, who writes difficult music, but it makes it, it there is a payoff. Like it makes yeah. sense that it's difficult. Like it, it should be difficult because that's what he was hearing and it feels organic, even if there's, you know, all kinds of wild time signatures and angular stuff going on. But sometimes it feels like people will write in a way that's just to be difficult for difficult sake. <laughs> and then you go, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah, and it's funny because uh, there was an article in The Globe um, several years ago, well, quite a few years ago, that, and it quoted Alan Chase. And it was uh, I, I didn't know that um, they were going to ask Alan. And it was really fun because they interviewed me, but then they, they also got, um, they, they talked to Alan. Mm-hmm. And he said, <laughs> he said that, Playing my music, like playing Ein's music, is like flying a plane through the Grand Canyon. It's really <laughs> exciting, but you gotta make sure you don't make a wrong turn. Sure. So, I I really enjoyed that compliment. Um, you know, but on the other hand, you know, um, my the one of my latest commissions was for a medium high school band, mm-hmm. and that was one of the scariest things I had to do. <laughs> Because, because I, I want, you know, I want to still be me, but it had, like, I want it to be playable and enjoyable, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like, not to have to write like a 12 bar blues, shuffle blues type thing, which I can do by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want it to give them something that is fun and yet playable and accessible for them, but also takes them to like, this is item Serto land. Sure. You know? And mm-hmm. so I'm also starting to get a little bit more into that sort of thing. Like I said, I love doing things outside of my comfort zone. Um, and um, I think it's a lot of fun to be able to do something like that. That's, sure. That's very, very different, um, you know, and 
And I will tell you the title of the piece because it's too much fun, but I called it Notorious RBG. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. There you go. It's got to be fun, though, to, like, I always, I always like the challenge of saying, like, okay, here are your limitations. You can't, the trumpet player is not going to be able to play above a certain note or something like that. Or, like, if, the, if, this, if the rhythms are going to be too complicated, these kids aren't going to be able to hang, you know. But how can you be creative and make something that is, that is interesting for everybody and interesting for you to write, you know, without having unlimited possibilities or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would tell my students about that that you had arrangers and writers, um, and you still do, but the, the folks that had to do ghostwriting or studio work, um, and they're writing like pop songs or writing for Ray Charles or something like that. The ones I really, um, holiday music is one of the ones I bring up. Mm. So you listen to all of these fun things. Where are the writers going to get their kicks in there? In sure, the, yeah. In the weird introductions or like, um, you know, you suddenly like, you know, hearing like muted brass and, flutes and clarinet doubles and things like that and but you you know you have like ella still singing away <laughs> so, right yeah, but yeah. they're sneaking in their creativity i, I guess sneaking in is maybe it's not the right word but they're able to be creative I, yeah. within a limited um you know with within limits and and yet also it's accessible you know people enjoy listening to it and then if you're a musician you're listening to it you're like whoa that's just a really cool line right there Mm. Um, and that's, and that's to me is fun. It's like, you know, it's just sort of like, how can you navigate, um, without having to be like, I am an artiste. Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> sure. Right, right, right. Do, do you think about your own personal style or is whatever you write uh, just by its nature or a reflection of your musical personality? I think it has morphed into that. There's some things I think that I know that I go to, there are sort of my go-tos and um, things that just happen to be a result of, um, you know, what has, what has come from before. Um, so I guess that's what's become my style. Like, um, and I get teased. <laughs> my husband teased me, teases me about some of my lines because it's like, it's because this predictable thing that I'm going to end up doing. And so I've actually tried to like, get away from some of that a little bit because I want to try to grow still. Mm -hmm. I, I still believe that I'm growing. So, but yeah, I, I feel like there's, like you said, that you could hear going from one, you know, contrasting from one track to the other, but it's still obvious that it's me. Um, and I, you know, the, the one thing that's a little bit jarring for me is when I hear my students start to sound like me. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, that's jarring because it's like, I know where I imitated Bob or where I imitated Maria or somebody, right? I know when that happened. But when I started to, to start to hear them, like, imitate me, I was like, oh, is this a good thing? I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it is a compliment, I guess you could say. But, sure. Yeah. Um, but it's, and it's, it's kind of fun. And the funny thing is I can point out exactly what they're doing that is, that is mine. And I'm like, interesting. you did that because I did that on this tune. Hmm. You know, I did that on this team. I know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Do you, do you try to steer them away from that or do you let them embrace it as a part of their... I let them embrace it. I mean, sometimes it's fun because there's a... I hear a combination of of me and Brookmire, particularly coming out of my Brookmire class. I mean, the movie makes a lot of sense. Um, and so that's, that's fun. And I just think of it how I imitate it. Brookmeyer and sort of just let them do that as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I sure. also try to, and then there are those that don't, and that's awesome. But I also I love that because I can work with somebody, still using the tools that I got from Bob, and then um, having them, but also within their style. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd be like, sure. you're, not, you're not expanding this here. You got to do this, and that sort of a thing. And it, and I'm like, this is you. This sounds like you, and that's cool. Um, and let's keep it that way and figure out how to expand within that. So, mm. cool. How do you think about form? Um. It so again, it depends on what I'm doing. I'm. It's very strange. I'm very kind of weirdly traditional in form. Mm-hmm. Um, where I just have an intro exposition, solo sections or solo section, and then um, and then sort of almost like a head out, depending on whether, um, you know, it is. So that's that's sort of how I think about form. I have, um, I have written like sort of lead sheet tunes in the past and stuff like that, and would stick with traditional forms as well. On occasion, I just kind of like let it go and just blast through the whole thing and see where where things come from. A lot of what I write is through composed. Mm-hmm. Um, even if there's a, sort of an allusion to what has happened before, it's usually, it's always manipulated in a different way, like whether it's a different tonal center, rhythms are changed a little bit, motif is developed a little bit more. Um, the concepts that I'm, um, that I try to teach is repetition, variation, and contrast. Mm-hmm. You repeat with variation, eventually you'll lead to contrast. So um, I try to do that a bit um, in my writing. And, and then that just kind of, on a macro level, as I said, form is pretty conventional to me. Okay. I'm not sure if that's what you were looking for. Yeah, or... yeah sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in particular the, the nature of the music being, um, to some degree, through composed in that you can choose to do whatever you want. It isn't, here's an AABA 32 bar thing that I'm going to arrange for the band. It's that you have the option to manipulate whatever you want in whatever way you want. Yeah. And then it's just about putting the piece together as like, okay, here's the contour of the piece. Here's where the solos are going to come in. Here's the intro. Here's how we're going to end it, et cetera, et cetera. I think transitions are usually the toughest part for most composers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I struggle I with that. I struggle with that as well. Um, because you're trying to go from one so-called section to the next. And even within an AABA arrangement, it's like, how do you glue that together so it doesn't sound like you're, you know, just like some, like, I real book accompaniment type situation, <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah. so the ideas of interludes or alluding to what's going to happen next, um, is, is those are sort of details. But I like to come up with an, an, at least a form of... Um, a, a macro idea of what I am composing initially, um, big picture stuff, um, so that I can then I will work within that. Uh, another thing that Brooke Meyer would talk about is three times, is the charm, so to say. Although he was mm-hmm. married four times, huh? uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that. Uh, but um, with with the idea of that you need to present something at least three times. But within those three times, you're going to do it with some variation, very slight. Because um, it's, it's, it's so that the listener can get accustomed to what your musical idea is. You know? Mm-hmm. That's why I always talk about the fact that serialism is hard for a lot of people to grasp. 
because, um, you know, with 12 tone music, you're not supposed to repeat. (laughs) Right. And so, and for a lot of people, those are, that's a difficult, that, that, that's not something that you can absorb within one hearing, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's an interesting point for that reason. I think probably specifically, that's a good point. Uh, in all of your albums, you seem to feature specific soloists. So the last one was Sean Jones, George Garzon, and John Fetchoff. Yes. Which is a killer combo. Yeah, they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have the, you must have the players in mind in advance as you're writing the pieces. Um, yeah. I mean, well, actually, and interestingly, in that down rabbit hole, was a commission I got years ago um, from um, Amherst College. So I didn't really have George in mind as a soloist, but when I was planning this album, I'm like, that's the perfect vehicle for him, you know? Um, And then Sean had approached me when he was chair um, of the brass department at Berkeley before he, you know, and said, hey, here are some of my tunes. Do you want to do arrangements of them? Which is why I picked... Um, the one that I did with BJ's tune. And then for John, um, never having really written for John before, uh, you know, just understanding his style of playing. And and so, yeah, really, really specifically for him being able to write that. Mr. and Dudley, by the way, were um, him and uh, his wife, Jen, Jennifer Wharton, who's also on the album, they're dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, I thought that sounded familiar. I thought that's what that was. Yeah, and then so it was fun writing that. I did um, make sure that they had a little duet in there in the middle of the tune. Um, and ah, so that's what I. That's interesting. I'm I'm hearing it now in my head. Uh, <laughs> well, now I'm gonna have to go back and check it out again. Yeah, it's it's where you hear the trombone and bass trombone with a counterline. And the fun part about that is that, you know, because they're in New York and obviously they, they're not going to be up in Boston playing as often. But I have another married couple in the band. So here again, the longevity of the band. They weren't married when they first were in the band. So <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, but um, Randy Pingray on trombone and uh, who also is a soloist um, on one of the tracks to teach. And Kathy Olsen who plays Barry. And so the fun part is that I've reworked it that when we play it with the band, the Boston-based band, that they get to duet. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, the hardest, one of the most fun, but kind of the hardest one to write was the first track, Three and Me. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to have the three of them on there. And they're obviously, you know, very different players. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to have solo sections that sort of reflected, like, their style. And, and that's where it was... Um, where I had to really dig a little bit <laughs> to figure out what to do on there for them. Um, but that was also still mine and also the transition, but it was really, really special, um, having, hearing them play together. Um, and, and, you know, on that one particular track in the beginning where they're all playing together, um, and that sort of a thing. So it's, it was super fun, um, mm. in that way, but yeah, it pro it's, it's interesting because, you know, going back to Brookmeyer, he always said, is it time for the solo? Do you need a solo? Is it jazz if there's no solo? You know? Um, sure. But the thing that he hated was when you give a soloist slashes and nothing else. Like, what does that have to do with your piece? You know? Like, uh-huh. what limit, like, how is the soloist supposed to respond 
to your piece, like, you know? And so, um, so in that way, like I initially, I'm more of a composer for the composer. <laughs> okay. And, oh, okay. And so in giving the direction to the soloist to sort of like think about what's going on behind what they're playing. They can't just go and jump in there and play like a Coltrane lick, you know, mm-hmm. you, like how does this relate to the original idea? So then having to write specifically for a person though, that's different as well. And so I wanted to try to try to sort of marry that in a sense of, I'm still like writing like how does this relate to my tune but how does this fit your style as well sure. as a soloist so mm-hmm. there was there was a definitely like a, a good amount of thinking and listening and planning that went into that yeah so that but, that one you did the the first tune you did write with them in mind oh yeah definitely trying to find the because that that also makes sense to me now talking to you about it like hearing that back in my head the the way that each of those features those particular soloists and i've been listening to all those guys for a long time i'm from boston originally so my friends and i used to go in on monday nights and go see the fringe all the time and uh probably i don't know how we pulled it off because then we had to wake up at 6 a.m the next day to be in high school or whatever but (laughs) it was totally uh it was that was like you know i learned more from that and i didn't have any idea what was going on but it was like a totally mind-blowing experience but it's very cool then to hear garzon's one of my favorite saxophone players of all time and um, it's it's cool to hear him within that context because it's unmistakable. You know, his voice is unmistakable within the context, and yet the context is a unique context of your own invention. And the same thing with I've been listening to Sean Jones forever as well, and he's got such a different style, but it's the same thing where like instantly you can hear that it's him, and yet it's in a new environment or whatever. Yeah, and it's you know I've been very lucky in terms of working with them. Um, this album is probably my most personal album, I would say. Uh, they're all personal, I guess. <laughs> but um, this one, just the idea of that, I knew, I've known each of them individually, you know, and to, to call them all friends and stuff like that, or been through um, personal stuff in life, you know, with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Sean, the most recent person that I've met, but the but the fact is um, that he embraced, um, you know, like me as a composer, me as a friend, and it's and it's amazing that the opportunities that I've had with him, you know, um, like we just had a couple of years ago, doing a commission at Carnegie Hall with him and the NYO Orchestra, um, so to be able to write again for him is just like fantastic, hmm. um, and so yeah, it's it's really been. And you just having that personal relationship. And yeah, we did that. Are you kidding me? And got to Boston every Monday night. Yeah. Where are you? We're at the fringe, but you have ensemble yeah. in the morning. Like, Oh, well, uh, <laughs> you know, <and> it's like, <laughs> we got class. You got to get up. But yeah, yeah. And then, um, and so, yeah, just to sort of bring that in together and figuring out how to, to match people that are not necessarily, um, gonna, you know, it, that don't normally play together. I think it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And one of the funniest parts about with with George is um, <laughs> he likes to do the thing. He's like, just point at me when I have to start, and then you just stop when I have to stop, <laughs> which is really fun. Uh, I mean, he knows the music really well and stuff like that. But it's it's always hilarious whenever he would play with the band, and you know, on occasion he would play stuff, and you know, if it, if it's something that he can just go all out on, it's really really hilarious. Sure. 
Yeah, let him do his thing. Yeah. Um, well, while we're on it, I'll throw this one in there. Who is the chooch? <laughs> George is the chooch. <laughs> it was a nickname that his father bestowed on him. Very sort of like, or I'm guessing it's his father. I'm pretty sure that is. And, you know, very Italian, sort of Italian family in Boston vibe. And uh-huh. he um, he wrote that. Those are all his lyrics. And he wrote that as something that he would sing. Like, the so, you know, the, um, the French would play, before they played at the Lily Pad, they'd play at the Lizard Lounge um, okay. for a long, for uh, quite a number of years. Um, in Cambridge and and that was that was sort of funny because <laughs> what was more dangerous about that is the fact that there's a bar there so you have all of these you know college uh, grad students in there um, till two in the morning and then having to get up for their John McNeil and song the next day yeah, right. <laughs> um, but you know we go down there and and so sometimes on occasion George would sing the chooch um, at you know, with the fringe where he has had ensembles, like his ensembles play it and stuff. <laughs> and I couldn't resist, you know, it's like, well, this makes, this is a fun way to end the album. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's so uncharacteristic of like the rest of the music. It's, it's just, yeah, I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah. And but we it's had super little... fun. But you still got in like the, the intro, the way that you structured the whole thing is still like you, you know? But yeah. it, it was, I was listening to it last night actually, and, I, and all of a sudden that came on at the end. I was like, whoa, here we are. <laughs> and I could, I, I could hear him instantly. I was like, wait a minute, that's Garzone singing this. Oh my but gosh. It's, it's pretty cool, man. I think it's, you know, I, it, I appreciate a little, um, a little humor and all this stuff. Well, know, it was just, get very serious. Oh yeah, no, and it's funny because in the recording, remember, just you know, it's just surreal to see George there, obviously with his you know saxophone mic, but then he has a vocal mic, you know, <laughs> he has this yeah. thing, and sort of like, and at the end, like you know, he goes, "Hey," and we all start to laugh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and we decided I decided to keep that in because it's just so real and organic and just. That's the moment. We were having a good time, you know? Yeah. Like you said, it's like, why would they be serious all the time? It's it's music. It should be fun. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. It's a perfect way to end, the, end that record. <laughs> that album's your first album, and that came out in 2006. Yes. And that also features Bob Brookmeyer on yeah. Valve Trombone, which is pretty amazing to hear him playing uh, over some of those tunes. Was he playing a lot at that time? Yeah, he still was. Um, well, we actually recorded it. I didn't release it till 2006, mainly because of funding or lack thereof. Sure. Yeah. But we recorded that, I think, in 2003 um, was when the recording was. But Bob was, yeah, he was actively still playing. He was still, um, you know, coming down to NEC, teaching. He, he didn't just teach um, composers. He also taught improv and things like that. You know, so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, he was still playing and being guest artists at places and still traveling and stuff like that. Um, it, it was only really with, within the last um, few, couple years of, you know, before he, he died in 2011, probably like in 08, starting in 08 and stuff, stuff started to be a little bit more on and off for him. Mm-hmm. I would say where he would cancel a little bit more. Sure. I, I think he was still technically on the roster when you were at NEC. Hmm. Um, 
but I think I think it just you know started to get hard for him. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because I I'd heard I'd heard about him that he tended to think that you would either write be a writer or a player at different moments in time, especially with brass instruments. Being a mm. trumpet player, I know the feel of like sometimes I'll spend a lot of time trying to finish a piece, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, have I played trumpet in the last couple of days? Or whatever? You gotta be <laughs> careful about it. So I wasn't sure if he was operating simultaneously or if he would tend to stick to one thing or the other. No, I mean he he always. I mean, I almost feel like I, when I was with, you know, like he never stopped playing. Um, and it was almost impossible, like if he was invited even to conduct his own music, usually he will do like the crowd pleasing thing of playing a tune. Sure. You know, and, and here's something that's pretty damn amazing. Um, and this is before Facebook, this is before you know, any of any sort of social media or even like camera phones, for God's sakes. Um, in some weird ways, it's kind of sad that I don't have documentation of it. But then in another way, it's like great that I have these memories. Mm. But, you know, we had my band playing down at the lily pad. Because this is a very surreal night. Think about this for just one second. We're at, <laughs> here we are at the lily pad as a big band. We have George up there, Garzon playing with us. And Brookmire, right? At the lily pad with my band. And then out of the back, and they're playing like, um, and so I decided like in between sets, like they'll just do some small group stuff. So they're playing mm -hmm. I Remember You, and and they're playing and, and then stuff like that. And all of a sudden, in the middle, like on the, when someone finishes a chorus, I don't remember who, you hear this tenor player coming out from the back. It's Lovano <laughs> coming into play. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My little band. And it's like, you got George Garzone, Bob Brickmeyer, Joe Lovato. I think Frank Tiberi comes along at some mm. point. And it's just like, okay, this is kind of cool. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, but he, he played, I think, till, you know, and I hate to say, but, you know, most of the time you've got the people who would invite him to all of these things and, you got Bobby Brookmeyer. Some people want to hear Bobby Brookmeyer, you know, and and mm. his in his eighth note. So they really want to hear her play, sure. not just his not just his composition type stuff. Right. But I think in his from the eighties on, um, he really became became very prominent in terms of writing, more so than before that. I mean, he was definitely a, a writer before that. But if you look in the earlier part of his career and just so many different recording dates um, with so many different types of configurations. Um, and then when he started to do stuff that started with the Vanguard jazz orchestra and then morphed into him going over to Europe mm -hmm. and writing for all of those different ensembles and things like that. Sure. And there's a little, there's a little gap in there between when he was playing, you know, with whoever with Clark Terry or with Jerry Mulligan. Mm -hmm. And then when he was writing for the, vanguard band when he was in california yeah but it's an interesting thing like his voice he still had his voice on the trombone from when he was you know when he was younger and then at the same time he's working on all these really kind of um forward moving let's say compositional mm -hmm. concepts and it's interesting the sort of contrast but every time i mean he must have every time he'd gone back to play trombone it's got to be like oh yeah okay it's like it's my voice back in back in action here you know it's got to be an interesting thing to have those two sides to the same personality 
Oh yeah, definitely. I I think yeah, it's it's funny because actually one of my favorite moments was him and Hal Crook mm. at NEC. Again, everyone's excited to go hear Bob Brookmeyer, Bobby Brookmeyer, and they want to hear him playing like standards and stuff like that. And then you got Hal Crook. It's like wow, that's you know another amazing player. Mm-hmm. And this was during the time when. <laughs> Both of them had these harmonizers and amps and pedals and whatnot. Interesting. And <laughs> so they're good. You're good. NEC, Jordan Hall. Bob Brickmeyer, Hal Crook. I don't remember what the rhythm section was. And they're playing like this electronic, like electric trombone stuff. And getting into like some free playing and all this kind of stuff. And people get up to leave. And Bob's very happy about it. He says, <laughs> no, it's true. Because he's like, you know, it's a good concert um, when people get up and leave because you're making new music. You know, he was always sure. a proponent of that. He wanted to, he's like, what's going on now? You know, why, why are you playing? And he, he also had the problem with like, he says people, <laughs> he make comments and like, they don't know how to swing the bassy band swung. You know, it's like, and so why are you playing Basie's music and you can't swing and like, this is old music anyways. Like, where's the new music? I want to hear what's going on. You got to hear like, you know, wanting to promote like new music, that sort mm. of a thing. So it's really, really interesting, his perspective on trying to be like very forward thinking and obviously advocating for his students, but also for more contemporary writers. And it's like, come on, we need new stuff. Sure. On a similar note, what drives you to continue to write? What's, a, what's inspiration for you? And what, do you have any projects in the works? Or what, what is next for you? Oh. <laughs> um, what drives me? To, I guess, you know, it's just, it's, it's my instrument. That's going to be, uh, as musicians can understand, that's my instrument. Like, so I have to sort of keep on going. Have I gone through periods where I haven't? Yeah, but part of that is just... You know, pandemic's been a little bit hard, particularly having to teach online, um, teach remotely, and there's a lot more preparation that goes into that than what normally would happen. So the writing gets to be a little bit more difficult during this particular time. And, you know, <laughs> the need for inspiration or motivation, so to say. Um, but I do have um, a project um, in which I am going to be featuring a Barry player with, with Big Band. Uh, that's a commission that's going to be coming up, and I'm excited about that. I think I might do a multi-movement suite. Um, I, I did a video, a remote recording video last, um, last summer. Took like three months <laughs> for one yeah. tune. But, um, it's a process. It is a process. Oh, my gosh. And I, I would like to do another one this summer, just to sort of like... Um, writing something and um, and going for that. Uh, I'm a, I'm on a tiny bit of a break now, only because mainly with with all my teaching. So I'm getting uh, that's like my priority in, in terms of just getting through the semester um, a little bit. But yeah, that's going to be the next thing. As far as the recording, I've seen people recording. There's always the possibility of trying to do this where you put every, like if you were to do this in sections or whatever in this particular pandemic era, but I'm not a fan of that. And so um, 
for my so-called next recording, it's going to be when it's safe enough for all of us to be in the studio together. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it like sort of piecemeal. Yeah. So it, and so as far as writing goes, it's it's going to be um, two two larger works, so to say, um, coming up. Um, I'm also actually getting as with the medium um, big band, a high school big band level type thing. I'm also getting a little bit more into that. I was contacted by somebody in Nebraska who was very excited <laughs> to to have something that's a little bit more unique that you know his high school could play. Mm. and and so he's like this is you know he wants to have more female composers it's it's harder to find stuff for that level he's like well well, why don't we commission you like that might be a possibility i'm like sure i'd love to do that so to be able to sort of create repertoire for that level i think would be is is another thing that i'm thinking about Mm. and then as and then i also have a network of um you know, students who have graduated, um, and, and I'd like to try to like have them sort of network with each other Mm -hmm. and also a little bit of a focus on female composers and musicians and trying to connect them as well. Sure. So trying to, to have that be a little bit, um, you know, uh, some of my focus and, and, you know, outreach if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Well, this has been great. And I really appreciate you taking the time uh, bringing us through your mindset as a composer and some of your, your background and everything. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to hear about your, you know, the recordings and where you've come from and where you're going. I'm looking forward to hearing what you come up with next. Uh, me too, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for checking out another episode of Jazztopia. Huge thanks to Ayn and Serto for joining me this week. I know I learned a lot. I bet you did, too. There's a lot of inspirational stuff in there. Uh, it was great to get to talk to her about her process. Uh, if you like the show and you like to keep up with us, you can follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Podcast, or on Apple iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or any of the other places that you find your podcasts and internet radio shows and music and various things like that be sure to give us a like and subscribe and follow us we've also got a brand new youtube page where we've got video of all of the conversations that we've had so far so be sure to check that out follow us there next week come back on wednesday i'll be talking to saxophonist michael thomas about his new album coming out on sunnyside records called natural habitat uh that's gonna be a lot of fun so i hope to catch you then everybody stay safe out there we're coming back we're gonna go back to playing live music real soon i can feel it i can feel it in my very bones all right thanks everybody hope to catch you next time see ya